Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Turn up, if you will, to Isaiah. Isaiah 55. We're going through this passage as a memory uh, selection for this year and taking our time. And, you know, as, you, as we memorize it, uh, and this is true of other passages, Romans 10, Romans 8, Jude, um, it's well worth our time to take some time and consider the words, consider the thoughts. Um, when you're memorizing, particularly in the prophetical writings like Isaiah or Ezekiel, sometimes, and, and I mean this charitably, sometimes we take passages unintentionally out of context. We misapply them sometimes. Uh, sometimes when we're, we're studying out of Isaiah uh, or other passages, historical or otherwise, we take something and we apply it, and that's not exactly how God intended it, it's well worth us to get the context of the passages. But there's some truths in Isaiah chapter 55 that are used very often and within context, but they're very familiar to a Christian that has spent some time reading and studying the Word of God. Uh, I suppose verse 6 would qualify under that, Seek ye the Lord why he may be found. Certainly, uh, verses 8 and 9 are often used, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. Uh, you go down in verse number 11, and you're, there's some pew Bibles here, and on the inside of the pew Bibles, if you'll open them up to the front cover, uh, they used to have a little label in it, and that's the passage. As my word goeth forth, it shall not return again void unto me, but shall accomplish that thing which I, I please, it shall uh, prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. And so these are familiar passages. But as we look at it, just like in the New Testament where there's a context, an underwriting lesson that is there, so it is in the Old Testament as well. God is not a God of the haphazard. There is a consistent, teachable lesson that God is providing. Now, when you get to the book of Isaiah, there's some 66 chapters there. Uh, sometimes Isaiah is referred to as the gospel according to Isaiah. And um, this might come of interesting note to you. If you were going to divide Isaiah, I would recommend to consider dividing it into two large sections. And interestingly enough, that division point would seem to naturally occur between the 39th and the 40th chapter. The first 39 chapters, if you will, primarily at its essence, the overarching theme is judgment. First 39 chapters, judgment. The last 27 chapters, from 40 down to 66, really concur an overarching theme of salvation. And I would have you note as well, as you look at your Bible, it also has 66 books. And that division between the old and the new is equally made at 39 and 27. And the overarching theme of the Old Testament, and there's 39 books, happens to do with judgment. Be that through uh, the Decalogue and the overarching laws of Leviticus and following of the Pentateuch, or be that of the prophetical writings, overarching we look at it has to do with judgment or law. And then you come to Matthew and you move through Revelation, that overarching theme is the finishing or the completion or the grace or, if you will, the salvation that has occurred. Equally in that last half, chapter 40 through chapter 66, you could divide that into three glorious sections. The first of those sections has to do with Israel being a distinctive nation. 
The second section, which we'll be in tonight, round about chapter 49 down through 55, 56, 57, has to do with the idea of a personal salvation. And we'll look at that briefly tonight in chapter 55. And then from 58 to 66, when you're looking at Isaiah, it really has the idea of a new heaven and a new earth. And in context, you can overview that through the experience and the expression of the New Testament that we see. God would have us be a distinct people. God would have us have an individual salvation. And through that individual salvation and only through that individual salvation where there'll be a preservation eternally or as we would say just a moment ago, eternal life. And that's really the theme. And when you go to chapter 1 of Isaiah, there's a beautiful expression that we're going to find again in chapter uh, 55. I have rehearsed this to you on many occasions, but it's in the 18th verse. A uh, couple of faults here. In verse 16, he talks about washing and making clean. And love verse number 18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so those are just overarching thoughts of Isaiah, of how it sets out. We're in chapter 55. And I mentioned to you, I'll just go back, but chapter 52 deals with the exaltation of God's servant. Now, when you think of God's servant, don't be ambiguous with that. Uh, we look at God's servant in an ambiguous essence. We could say, well, that's anybody that wants to please God. But in prophetical teaching, God's servant is the Christos, the Christ. It is the Messiah. It is Yeshua. It is the coming Redeemer. It is Emmanuel. It is the prophesied uh, son of the virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, I give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive in verse number 14. And so when he speaks of this exaltation, he's talking about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you come to chapter 53 and you've got the humiliation of God's servant. And I won't spend time to divide that right now, but that's a beautiful chapter. He was bruised for our sins and iniquities. He was spat upon. He was rejected like a sheep led to a slaughter. And that's the essence. And then when you get to chapter 54, you've really got the restoration of Israel. Subsequent to the crucifixion of the Messiah, Israel was not a nation as what we might know a nation today. And even to this very hour, she is rebuffed. She is dismissed. She is off-persecuted. She has Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 disobeyed in the matter of salvation and received not the promise of the everlasting God. But there's a promise given in chapter 10 and 11 of Romans that one day she will be restored. One day the nation of Israel will accomplish the purpose that God had for her. One day she will be the illuminary that will shine into all the nations of the world. A redeemed group of priests that shall minister to the Most High God whose capital is in that new Jerusalem. And that will be the day. And by the way, that's the last several chapters of the new heaven and the new earth and the millennial kingdom and that place that God is prepared. He has not forgotten Israel. I read an article this week talking about eschatology and one of the things that is often left out of eschatology is Israelology. We get into this idea that God has thrown them away and forgotten them, not recognizing the historical prophetical truth that they are God's timepiece and He has made promises. And just as you and I have exceeding great and precious promises before the Almighty God, so Israel redeemed will one day experience the completion and the fruition of all those promises which God has made unto her. Listen, a God that does not keep His promises to Israel is a God that is not worth your time and trusting. 
In fact, I would call him a God that is not trustworthy. If God is going to break an everlasting covenant that he has made with David in 1 Samuel, he's going to break an everlasting covenant he made with Abraham, what meaneth you that you have an everlasting covenant of salvation? It behooves every child of God to realize that the future has a tremendous amount to do with that tiny postage stamp nation of Israel. They are God's choicest vineyard. The clock of God's prophetical watch moves in accordance to that uh, settings of that uh, particular society. And so when you come to the 54th chapter, the idea here is, uh, is a restoration of Israel. And there's a couple of very important things to consider, and I'm setting this up for chapter 55. But in the first few verses, he starts in chapter 54, I think, with joy. Yes, singing and crying aloud and joy. By the way... Why we might call Isaiah the gospel according to Isaiah, if you look in chapter 54 and you even come over to chapter 55, he mentions clapping, shall clap their hands and singing in verse number 12. More than 30 times in the 66, books, uh, 66 chapters of Isaiah, he mentions something of songs or singing. One of the grand things that will happen in the future for Israel is it will be a restoration of joy. And then in chapter 54 he continues, it will be a, res- a restoration of fruitfulness. That which was barren will bear fruit. And then he concludes in the 54th chapter that it'd be a restoration of confidence. Expectation, if you will. He admonishes them several times in that chapter, particularly in the book of Isaiah, to fear not. You'll find that expression at least um, half a dozen or ten times in Isaiah. Fear not, fear not, fear not. And in keeping... They can have confidence in this restoration because, verse number four, they know their sins are forgiven. They can have confidence because of the Messiah's steadfast love. They can have confidence because of the promises of God. By the way, isn't that the same place we derive our confidence? What's allowing you to get up tomorrow morning and face the difficulties of your life? We mentioned just a moment ago, sufficient to the day the evil thereof. There's going to be stuff come up tomorrow that you're not even prepared for. Of course, I think that might be the sovereignty of God at play too. I'm thankful that when I was a little boy that I wasn't given a story of my life and been told the hourly plague at which every difficult thing was to fall, I would have just quit. I do think I would have. It has seemed too difficult. And Job speaks of these trials that as as the sparks fly upward, so is the trouble that a man is going to face in this life. And Israel's going to have many more troubles that she's going to face until she arrives at that perfect point in time of the will of God. But her confidence of this restoration is based exclusively in the exceeding great and precious promises of the same God that gives you and I confidence. That's Israel. That is the restoration of Israel. And then you come to chapter 55. And now the conversation has moved slightly. The focus in chapter 55 was Israel. In chapter 52 and 53, God's servant. But chapter 55 is the Gentile. Noted verse number one. Ho, everyone that what? Thirsteth. The conversation now is moved and it's an invitation to the Gentiles and this will continue all the way into chapter 56. And I won't get to all of these tonight. I hope to get through the first five verses. That's my goal tonight. But there's three specific invitations given to the Gentiles. In verses one through five, the invitation is singularly around one word. Come. In the balance of the chapter, 6 through 13, you'll find it in verse number 6, seek the Lord. And then when you get over to chapter 56, 1 through 8, the theme is worship. 
A Gentile had no ability to worship because he couldn't come. He wasn't a Jew. He had no ability to seek, as the Scriptures say, the Lord while he may be found. He has no revelation. The oracles of God were not given unto him. He only had natural revelation. And yet, because there is the promise of a future restoration of Israel, God had a definitive purpose. And now you and I can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I was talking this afternoon. I, I, I listened. I like documentaries. And I love life when I'm able to do two things at once, which so rarely ever happens for me. This week I was doing something, and I could use the other half of my brain, and I, I put on a documentary, and, and what I selected was about the Scythians. You familiar with the Scythians? They're mentioned one time in the Bible. That's what drew my attention to them. They're an ancient people group. There might be some former Scythians here tonight. But they lived in the area north of the Caspian Sea. And they're mentioned in Colossians chapter 3 and talking about them to whom have received the promise of the gospel. Those saved, he said, it's, it's not to the Jew only, but to the Gentile, the barbarian, and the Scythian. I listened to this documentary. It was like Mickey Mouse. I don't know if we're allowed to say that anymore, but it's like Mickey Mouse. I double time it, you know, and he's squealing on there. But, but here's the point. You know what the Scythians were? The worst of the worst Gentiles in the time of Paul. Barbarians, that in a real sense, that meant unhellenized. They were not civilized Greeks. Worship polytheistically, they offered sacrifices. A little on the slow side, you know, they were cutting birds up with divination to try to figure out if they should attack instead of making tactical plans like that. That's, that's what a barbarian was. There was no aspiration of education, enlightenment in that sense. They were bad. But the Scythians... Scythians, are, almost all of them were red-headed. All of them historically were large-statured for their time in life. And they were not farmers. They were not planters and sowers of seeds. You know what they did? They mounted horses and conquered. And until they were beaten back by the Germanic tribe, they ruled almost all of what is now modern-day Russia. As one historian put it, they were the Huns and Mongols before there were Huns and Mongols, the Scythians. And Paul is expressing the great joy of salvation that can come to anybody by faith. Be it if you're a moralist Jew, Romans chapter 2, or be it if you're a wretched, godless, barbaric Scythian, the saving grace of Jesus Christ reaches even me. All can turn by faith. There's just one glorious issue that is present. That soul has to thirst. The Lord on the mountain of the Beatitudes speaks about him that hungers and thirsts after righteousness and that he should be filled. It's a beautiful evangelistic term, the word ho that is present there in verse 1. That Jesus Christ, the servant of God, died not only for Israel, but also for the sins of the entire world. It's a gospel note. It urges that anyone that is wise enough to attend to anything in life that would concern them can turn to the glorious cry of salvation. This invitation is extended to anyone that would hunger and thirst after him. They were to come. That's the present here. Come ye to the waters. I love the phrase here, he that hath no money. And then in the last part of verse number one, he's going to talk about buying stuff without money and without price. 
That's an interesting thing. It means a transaction had to be made, did it not? Nothing's ever free. Your salvation was free to you, but it was not free. For the Gentile to pull his knees under the marvelous table of salvation, it was not free. But his ability to come from his perspective, he's able to get the wine and the milk and the bread that he's present and enjoy all of this extravagance that God would possibly provide. He speaks of water. Water in this particular era was a precious commodity. And if one was to have an extra or an abundance of water, it was seen as a great sign of blessing. Yet I would remind you of what the Lord said in the 7th chapter. Let me flip over there. In, Roman, in John chapter 7, he's in the last days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day of the feast, in verse number 37, he stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him what? Come unto me and drink. A marvelous expression. How much can he drink? He'll never reach bottom. How much of God's sanctifying blood was necessary to wash away the sins of your life? To remove you, as we talked about this morning, the announcements, it was part of it too, as far as the east is from the west. How much of God's glorious ability was necessary... Friend, he has an expansive, exponential amount. Enough for anyone, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, to come unto him and drink. And he continues in verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall what? Do you remember? I know you're probably not there, but shall flow rivers. (laughs) Time won't allow us, but you know that reference of living water. That's found over there in Leviticus. For every Old Testament sacrifice that would require a ritual bathing, Hebrews chapter 6 calls it a baptism of the Old Testament, they would need washing. It couldn't come out of stagnant water. It had to come out of living water or a spring. The construction on the Temple Mount was this way. The Temple Mount was located between two pools, the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Bethesda. You know, there's one on either end. One was at the Sheep Gate. You'd clean the sheep as they came in, and that was the top. That was not a living water. It was fed by aqueduct. But the one at the bottom, that one which churned, was fed by an underground spring, Gihon. That was a living water, and that was what they used for all the rituals. That is what the Old Testament commanded. You'll please God with your life. You'll have a great, flowing, energizing, life-giving supply. It's evangelistic in mind. As you look at these words, wine and milk and water, etc., and even bread, they're all conducive to various aspects of the word of life. I mentioned there in John chapter 7, he speaks of rivers of living water. You get in 1 Peter chapter 2, and even in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the milk. He desires the sincere milk of the word may grow thereby. In John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. These were, these were aspects of necessity in life. Reminded of John chapter 6. He says, Labor not for meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. A great evangelist. It's here to the Gentiles. Come. You don't have any money. You don't have any righteousness. You don't have any great wealth. If you're thirsty, come. And God said, 
I'll supply. Notice verse number two. Here's an eternal question. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? Now remember, bread, in the sense of verse number one, that's eternal. Life-giving. Why are you spending your life, your labor, he's going to mention, for that which satisfies not? Is that not what the world does? It's a timeless question, really. Addressed to people of every generation and culture that ever exists. Men toil and spend their substance and strength on that which does not bring satisfaction. I have sarcastically said this before. If money and wealth brought satisfaction, Wall Street and Hollywood ought to be the happiest places on earth. Read about that actress that died last night. She's in a car wreck. 53 years old. In her Land Rover, Mini Cooper, I think it was actually. Flying down a road, 90 mile an hour, lost control and wiped out somebody's house. It caught on fire. A neighbor ran over there, pulled her out. Pulled her out of the fire. Saved her life, but she suffered severe brain trauma and succumbed. Last night's over a week since her accident. I don't know if you read any of that. You might look at that and roll your eyes a little bit. But I, why would a 53-year-old? I get a 22-year-old. I had a friend of mine. He's 15, 16 years old. He went speeding out of his granddaddy's highway, uh, granddaddy's yard, in his old Mustang. Uh, went flying down there and hit railroad tracks, and that car went airborne, turned sideways, and landed in somebody's living room. I don't agree with it, but understand it. I could say he was stupid. But a 53-year-old? There's a lot of questions. She was a celebrity, A-lister in many regards. What happened? It's interesting she was raised in church. They did a blood screen on her. She's full of cocaine and other drugs. How miserable she was. But wait a minute. She had everything you could have wanted in life. Wealth, prestige. You know, some of you this summer have went and you decided you're going to take vacation and you, got to, you live by a budget. You've got to figure out how many times you can go to eat and how many times you can't go out to eat and when you get to eat sandwiches and when you've got to do this and, and everything's got to be a budget. And if there's any curveball that is thrown, gas went up to $5. You're like, ah, I don't know if we can do this. I'm waiting for them to put out coupons for gas. That wasn't her life. Everything you could want in life, and yet she was absolutely miserable. She's not alone in that. Hollywood and Wall Street are full of some of the most miserable people on the planet. What are they doing? They're spending their life. They're spending of their money for that which is not bread. And their labor for that which satisfieth not. Without the light of God's word, one will never have an understanding of their greatest need. And disappointment and frustrations will continue to follow in mass. Man, you look at this and you can write by it the Gentile. We've somewhere instructed ourselves that money and wealth bring happiness. But what happens when all the things that should bring happiness no longer bring happiness? What happens when your money 
makes like wings and surely to fly away. And that was your hope and your trust. A great need that is present. Notice the emphasis, and I want to tie this with verse 3 in a moment, but notice in verse number 2, he says, hearken diligently to me. Verse number 3 starts out, incline your ear. I like Proverbs. In reference to right in this theme, he says, bow down thine ear unto my words. Listen to me. You want to know why people spend their money for that which is not bread and labor for that which satisfieth not? Because they won't listen diligently to the commands of God. True happiness does not depend on abundance. Our Lord said in the Gospels, man shall not live by bread alone. There's another part of that verse, do you remember? But by every word proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You'd be better off in life, especially I speak to those that are nearing the end of their college years or nearing the end of their high school years. Somebody says, what are you going to do with your life? You'd be better off to answer it this way, I'm going to obey God, than make money. If you set your life to obey God, it'll be a challenge, but I promise you it'll be a reward. You set your life to make money, it'll never be accomplished. Because at the end, money cannot buy everything and not even the most important things in life. Notice number two, hearken diligently to me. Eat that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in what? Well, there goes the, all the medical books and dietary needs. There goes your low-fat diet, and your keto diet, and your high-fat diet. What's that mean? Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Now today we have all of this aversion to this. That's not the case in biblical times. In biblical times, the food sources they had was quite agrarian. Mostly they consisted on veggies, grains, fruit, and occasionally fish. At times, festively, particularly of Israel, they'd have meat. It's interesting, if you were to go back and you look in Leviticus, you begin to read all the meat offerings. Not all of the meat offering was always consumed. By fire, I mean. Sometimes it was. Other times you'd give an offering, like a peace offering, you'd take the meat and take the animal in there. And the animal was butchered. Sometimes it was scalded and the priest would reach out and he'd get a hunk. Whatever part God put on the hunk, that's what he got. However, there was one part of the animal that was strictly forbidden to be eaten. Do you remember what it was? The fat. I mean, as a Gentile, you just said, oh man, that's what makes it taste good. He said, the call and the fats, they are mine. The priest couldn't have them. Some of you are like, well, that's great because I hate that stuff. Children of Israel couldn't have them. But medically, they needed fat for the operation of their brain, a good fat, if you will. Often that was got through oils, not unlike olive oils. And I've mentioned to you before, when they'd get those olives, they'd have three pressings. The first pressing was a high olive oil. And that was tithed unto God. And that's what was often used to, to anoint the priest or used in sacrifices or used, if you will, to anoint a future king, etc. There's a second pressing, and that was your edible pressing. And the third pressing was so much full of so much stuff, remnant, that it was used and they would put into a candle and that's what they lit the light of their houses with. So if you can put it this way... 
by saying in verse number two, delighting thyself in fatness, that was something that was highly desirable, not something that just anyone could do. In reference to salvation and speaking specifically of the Gentiles, if we'll hearken unto God, you'll eat that which is good. You'll let your soul delight in its fatness. You'll have all the greatest delights of life. Now I should note that there's a stern warning given in the 37th Psalm. Those delights come as our heart delights in God. I don't want to be accused of preaching a prosperity gospel that somehow God's going to fill every dream and ambition that you ever wanted in life. No. But as I walk with the God of my salvation and I commune with Him, my heart becomes keenly aware of His will for my life and I submitting and yielding myself, listening intently, inclining my ear, harking diligently unto Him, now begin to embrace every aspect of His will and the greatest joy in a Christian's life will always be pursued by desiring that thing which most pleases God. Delight itself in fatness. How do you do that? Well, I think the text speaks for itself. It requires me to listen carefully. It's an easy thing to talk about opinions. It's an easy thing to get caught up in what we think. But when was the last time that we've listened to the words of God expressly from His written revelation and noted what God wants from us? Half the battle in the Christian life is not the world. It's getting our sinful mindset to submit to God's express command. And if we need a proof text for that, it's found in verse number 8. His thoughts are not ours. It's a great struggle, if you will. How do I gather myself to delight in all of the greatness that God would have? I listen carefully. Number two, I have to have some discernment. Eat. That which is what? And a lot of times spiritually. Oftentimes Christians lack discernment. Will swallow, what's the old adage? Everything, hook, line, and... You know what that means. A little kid, the senior saints I hung around, a very influential mind, they use that all the time. Hook, line, and sinker. And I, what in the world? Now I went fishing one day. And you know what they're saying? That little fish opened up so bad, it swallowed everything. You know, sometimes you go fishing, and that little fish had some discernment. It would just tease with the line, and old fishermen would play a little bit with it. And you'd hear them say something, I got a nibble. And by the time you'd watch, and that bobber would go up and down real quick. It's almost, I guess, wiggle a little bit more. Might give it a little tug. But on a grand occasion, you get a fish that's so famished. It sees that little old Ronnie worm on the hook. It says, I don't want him to get away. And you know what he does? Opens up like the great fish of Noah's day. Unhinges his jaw like a rattlesnake. And leaps for joy at it. And swallows everything from the little hook, the weight, all the way up to the bobber. And there's no getting off of that hook. Discernment. You want to delight yourself in what God has, your will of God. You're going to have to listen intently. Number two, you're going to have to eat that. You're going to have to know the good from evil. Discernment. Discernment is applying the knowledge of God to the decisions of life. No child of God will ever have discernment if they don't first know what God said. 
And if they don't secondly seek to make their life firstly based on the premise, what does God want? You know, you take for a moment and you ask yourself that a question. What does God want from me? And your life, the, the decisions of life will become quite uh, simple. You got up from your nap Sunday afternoon and you say, what does God want from me? Well, He wants me to worship Him. That's an easy decision. You get up on Monday morning, what does God want from me? Well, He wants me to live holy. What should I watch on TV? Set no wicked thing before my eyes. That, I mean, that just makes things with great clarity in life. The greatest trouble isn't knowing what God wants. It's correlating my heart and my actions to His will. A third thing he says is delight in the fatness. And in that part, I would say of this, when I delight upon God, I discern the distinction between good and evil. I then set my heart to enjoy the things that God enjoys. I dare not say that we should set in relationship to our worship the type of music we like or the type of this. I like, I like. What about what God wants? Make that preeminent. Learn to enjoy the things that God enjoys. The Word of God provides all the essential elements that are needed in a wholesome diet. It says in verse number 3, You incline your ear, you come unto me, you hear, your soul shall live. He's going to move on to talk about an everlasting, an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. I ask you a question. What good does that do? So make an everlasting covenant with me, even the sure mercies of David. This is Isaiah. Who lived first, David or Isaiah? Where's David at when this is written? Let me rephrase that. Where's David's body at when this is written? It's in a sepulcher somewhere. He was buried with his fathers. Now, how does that draw on me any desire? He's going to give me an everlasting covenant like David? Where's David at? David's dead. David is no more. The promise extends to David personally. But beyond that, the, the promise is in the person and work of the fulfilled David, which is Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, the Scripture records that God gives to David an everlasting covenant that his throne, his home, his house, rather his kingdom, his throne would be established forever. This reference, this, this commander that is given in verse 4, this leader, this witness to the per- per people, this sure, mercy's everlasting covenant are surrounded around an ultimate reference to the Messiah to be carried out by his redemptive will. And the Messiah lives. David was tasked in the Old Testament to be a witness, to be a leader, to be a commander. And yet these also were the missions of God's servant, Messiah. In the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, you don't have to turn there, I'll just give you these. In the 42nd chapter, he's referred to as the judge of nations, Messiah, not David. In chapter 49, he's allied unto the Gentiles. In chapter 52, he's the supreme king against all nations. In chapter 11, in talking of that future day, all of his rest, the scripture says, after he set up his kingdom, all of his rest is glorious. Yet I asked you where David was, and we said he's in a grave. But do you know something? Not only is this a reference of Messiah, it's a double reference here. I want to share something with you. 
Look over in Jeremiah chapter 30. I believe it's filled in the, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the context. Let me say something. One day, David will have a glorified body. It's going to happen. And in that day, David is going to be a prince, a king in the millennial kingdom of God. Look at Jeremiah chapter 30. I think I told you that. I believe it's in verse number 9. Yes. He speaks in verse number 8, shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall be no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God. All caps Lord denotes who? Jehovah. The Christ. Emmanuel. The Messiah. And that's followed by a conjunction which is the word and, meaning there will be two. And David there, as I see that, that's two distinct people. It should not be foreign to our mind. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, we're told that God's people will rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. David in this kingdom is going to be something of, if you want to use this term, a co-regent with Christ. In a very real sense, one day, just as I'm flesh and blood and you're flesh and blood, one day, David, that covenant that God made will be everlasting and David will sit on a literal throne over a literal kingdom and you and I all will be present to see it. But David right now did not experience that prior to his death. He died the death that every man's going to die. The scripture mentions in his old age his body would not get heat anymore. Do you remember that? He was no longer the great hero that downed Goliath. He was no longer the rugged man that roamed the hillsides. He was no longer the great warrior general. He now has been famished by age, as all will one day be, but he's going to live again, and that's the promise here in Isaiah chapter 55. He is a witness to the people, a leader and commander, that one day he will be used yet again of God. And David's an interesting prototype here, I'll be honest with you. David's one that had a terrible scandal. David's one that endured a civil war. David's one whose outward success was at best questionable at times. Yet God used David. What a glorious promise to the Gentile. You're a barbarian, you're a Scythian. I'm a more or less Jew. Wish that I could go back and live my life and change and regret had taken hold. Come, delight yourself in fatness. I give you even the tender mercies of David as a witness, as if you will, a sign unto the people. It goes on into verse number 5. Thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not. Who's he talking about there? I think he's referencing to Israel. Thou. You know, made up of a multiple host. Yes, that's right. One day, Israel will be all Israel, all believing. He says, they'll run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified thee. What an amazing thing. Right now, or just last week, 
you have the nation of Israel, all these rockets, you know, they're back at it. I don't know why they're shooting this time. It just seems to be a monthly event. One day in the future kingdom, the Gentile nations will gather around and five or six of them lay hold on one Jew. Let's go up to the mountain of God to worship. What are they doing? They're delighting in the fatness of God. You know, this is in part, in a small part, seen even in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, you have a series of conversions that were remarkable. In Acts chapter 10, you have one named Cornelius who comes to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 11, they go and they preach the gospel and the scripture says in Acts chapter 11 verse 18 that they preach the gospel to the Jews only at that time. But someone made a mistake. Now that's not what the scripture says. I'm using this for emphasis. And they preached it to some Gentiles. And in verse number 19 of chapter 11 it said, and many of the Greeks... The, the, the phrase they're actually speaking in verse number 19, in great number is the phrase, came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then you come to chapter 13 and verses 1 through 8. You've got a church in Antioch, and they're sending out missionaries. And some of the first places they're going to send are going to be not Jewish bastions, but they'll be preaching the gospel among the Gentiles in places like Corinth and Rome, etc., Isaiah mentions this again in chapter 2 and in chapter 45. Zechariah touches on this in chapter 8 when he says, Yea, many people, strong nations, shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. See, of chapter 55, he's moved beyond the exaltation and the restoration, the exaltation of God's servant and the restoration of the nation of Israel. And he's come to a great time and place in which there's an invitation to Gentiles to enjoy some of the same blessings and fellowships that were meant for Jews in the first place. To come and dine like Mephibosheth of old. Undeserving of this status. Unworthy of this. Yet by simple, humble faith, they become heirs of the divine nature that is that Second Peter chapter 1 that we started with. Do you remember? I'm a partaker of a divine nature. What did I do to earn it? I simply obeyed the wooing of the Spirit of God and by faith believed. And I can delight myself in all of the good things that God had ever intended for His people. Yet there's a second directive here and that's found in verse number six seek ye the Lord and note this phrase what's it say while he may be found teach you a little doctrinal truth chapter 55 and verse one however one is thirstest let him come the gospel is the gospel of whosoever will may come. Isaiah 55 and verse 6. It is not the gospel of whensoever will may come. There is an appointed time when the age of grace and the opportunity for salvation will be closed. Think of Noah's day. Days turned into months. Months turned into years. And old faithful engineering contracting Noah preached the gospel of Jesus Christ 
Until such day, what did God do? He shut the door. It's not whensoever. You'll come while God is calling. Or you will have rejected His free gift. That's a terrible thing to consider. But that is the truth of Scriptures. God's desire forthwith spoken by His prophet is to recognize the true importance and the gracious offer that He has made. He desires to sup with those of His creation in true holiness. Yet they are to seek Him while He may be found. It is not an infinite access. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Let's stand to our feet. Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.